I've been emphasizing over the last five weeks is this idea about change and using DNA to tell us about that change. And if you'll recall what we've, you know, one of the things I've been emphasizing, whether it's human populations or life on Earth, is the idea about diversity, how things are so different. And one of the things that we've talked about as well is how that change occurs, both at the DNA level in terms of adding genes or taking away genes, about how new structures are created, and also how novelties are created, so new things like patterns on the wings of butterflies. And so my lectures have really been about diversity and change. In today's lecture, I thought I'd just finish by saying, not everything changes. And I'm going to finish with the idea of what are called immortal genes. And immortal genes are essentially genes that haven't changed much in two billion or so years. So what we've been emphasizing is diversity and change and how that occurs. But at the end of the day, some things don't change very fast or at all. And what I'd like to highlight today is that one last aspect and use DNA to get us some insight into that process and into the various earliest stages of eukaryotic evolution. So although my lectures are, have focused on, on change and how DNA can tell us about sort of our past, I really haven't talked much about sort of the theories of evolution. And, but what I want to do is to highlight one of the aspects of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, which is the idea of natural selection. I'm just going to read here. Um, the essence of Darwinian evolution is that natural selection results in incremental variation that results in the great diversity of life that we see today. And Darwin's process of evolution involves three key components. They're variation, selection, and time. But one of the things that is often overlooked in this idea of natural selection, and we think about it as change over time, Things are, are changing. Natural selection is, is picking the winners or the things that are better adapted to survive. But one of the things that natural selection also does is that it removes what are called injurious change. So things that might be negative for an organism, natural selection removes those things. And again, immortal genes are genes that have not changed substantially in the last two billion years. And the reason why they haven't changed is because of the process of natural selection. That these genes, because of their importance, the organism can't afford to have substantial changes in those genes. And because of that, those genes for two billion years have remained relatively unchanged. And I'll give you some examples of that to show you how the process works. So what this slide shows are what are known as the three domains of life. We have eukaryotes up here, which is where humans, plants, yeast, um, 
all those organisms will group into here. And this is essentially what we've been talking about throughout this course. So we have eukaryotes, and then there are three, or sorry, there are two domains which are, make up the prokaryotes. Okay? And those represent the archaea group and the bacteria. So life on Earth is broken up into three domains, eukaryotes and prokaryotes, which are broken up into archaea and bacteria. And so this is the grouping of all life that we have on Earth today. I know I haven't really introduced the term prokaryotes or eukaryotes form formally, so I'll do that now. Prokaryotes, and what you probably think of prokaryotes, you have bacteria in your head. Although, again, there's a whole separate domain called archaea. And the archaea are, among other things, the types of um, prokaryotes that are found in uh, extreme environments, so like hot springs at Yellowstone, for example, those geothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean, those are where archaea are often found. Uh, but the prokaryotes are made up of both bacteria and archaea. And there are a lot of differences between prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells. And I'll just highlight the main difference from a morphological standpoint. That is that prokaryotes lack membrane-bound compartments within the cytoplasm of the cell. So in prokaryotes, the DNA and all the enzymes that are present in the cytoplasm are all present in the same compartment. There's no subdivisions of the, of the cytoplasm into membrane-bound compartments. Everything is present in, in one cytoplasm. Okay, there's no subdivision, or what we call organelles in eukaryotic cells. In particular, prokaryotes lack a nucleus, which again is the membrane-bound compartment that surrounds DNA in eukaryotic cells. In this course, we've been pretty much exclusively talking about eukaryotic cells. And again, the main distinction between prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells is the presence of these membrane-bound compartments within the cytoplasm. These membrane-bound compartments subdivide the cytoplasm into um, discrete sort of, they have discrete biochemical processes within different organelles, right? So the nucleus contains the DNA within the cell. There's also things like the endoplasmic reticulum and Golgi apparatus, which is involved in how proteins are secreted from the cells. There's lysosomes, which are involved in protein degradation, and mitochondria, which provide the energy source for the cell. So one of the main distinguishing features, again, between prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells are the presence of these membrane-bound structures called organelles in eukaryotic cells. Now that we can sequence genomes quite easily, it was very quickly revealed that if you sequence genomes of archaea, bacteria, all sorts of different eukaryotic cells, what you find are about 500 genes that are shared between all of those groups. So there are about 500 genes that are present in bacteria and archaea, prokaryotes, that are also found in humans, for example. A typical bacterial cell will contain about 4,000, so E. coli would have about 4,000 genes. Uh, Drosophila, that species we looked at in the last couple weeks, has about 13,000 genes. 
humans have about 21,000 genes, just to put that 500 into context. So a good proportion of the genes in, in an animal, in a typical eukaryotic cell, a, a number of those genes are shared with bacteria or other prokaryotes that are shared, those 500 genes must date back at least 2 billion years, which is when the first eukaryotic cell arose. So prokaryotes and eukaryotes last shared a common ancestor. If we think about you know, the way that we've been analyzing uh, taxonomy in this course, we have 500 genes in common between prokaryotes and eukaryotes. The last common ancestor of those organisms lived about two billion or so years ago. So those 500 genes, their sequence has remained relatively intact over two billion years. So what do these genes do? Those 500 genes tend to be in processes that are fundamental to all life on Earth. So whether you're a prokaryote or a eukaryote, there's a simple flow to information in the cell. DNA is the storage mechanism. It stores the information. And the flow of information goes DNA makes mRNA, mRNA makes protein. Okay. Whether you're a prokaryote or a eukaryotic cell, that's the basic flow of all information in the cell. DNA to RNA to protein. Those 500 genes that we see conserved play a role in replicating DNA, so replicating the message or, or the blueprint. The genes that are involved in transcription, which is taking DNA and making mRNA, and the genes that are involved are the proteins that are involved in taking mRNA and making it to protein. And again, whether you're a prokaryote or a eukaryotic cell, that's the basic flow of information. And those conserved genes, those 500 immortal genes, are often found, or many of them are found in the processes of DNA replication, transcription, and translation. But the idea is that DNA, here double-stranded, right, is used to, as a template to make mRNA. What happens is you have a piece of double-stranded DNA, and to make mRNA, the double-stranded DNA separates. And in this particular example, the top strand here is used as the template to make mRNA. And you'll notice that RNA uses the nucleotides, the same nucleotides that DNA does, except for a thymine is replaced by uracil, or U, in mRNA. So that when you're, making, when you're transcribing mRNA, your double-stranded DNA separates. In this case, the top strand is used as a template, and you simply add the complementary base to A is T, or U, in RNA. Then you have CC, which the complementary bases are C's pairs with G's, A's pair with T's. So you go GG, A pairs with T or U in RNA, A, U, C, C, G, which will be G, G, C, and so on. So one of the strands of, of DNA acts as a template to make mRNA. 
and then the mRNA is translated into protein. And again, remember that the way that the mRNA is decoded into protein is using these three nucleotide codons. So three nucleotides form a codon, which, is, uh, which signals for a particular amino acid. So UGG tells the translation machinery to put tryptophan in. UUU tells the translation machinery to put phenylalanine in. Now, you don't need to know any of the specifics of transcription or translation. If I really wanted you to know that, I'd do a 20-minute lecture on it. So I just wanted you to get a sense, though, for those fundamental processes and why making mRNA and making protein, first of all, why it's central to life, and then also to just get a sense that there are a number of proteins that form complexes that are part of that process. Okay, so you don't need to know the specifics of it, just sort of know what, it's, uh, the, what the process is doing. So here's an example of an immortal gene. It's a portion of what's known as uh, elongation factor 1-alpha. And that's a protein that's involved in that translation process. So taking mRNA and converting it to protein. Um, these represent, these letters represent the single amino acid code. Um, so amino acids have a, a, a three-letter uh, code as a short form and a one-letter code. If you want to know what these are, you can check your textbook. But D is aspartic acid, A is alanine, P is proline, etc. Um, but it's not really that important. What I've diagrammed here are a number of species, three eukaryotes, so human, tomatoes, a plant, yeast is a fungi, and then an archaea and a bacterial portion of the amino acids from elongation factor 1-alpha. And in green, these are the amino acids that are the same, and white are amino acids that are different. And what you can see is that particularly in this region here, from here to here, the amino acids are very similar. So whether you're a prokaryote or a eukaryotic cell, this portion of elongation factor 1-alpha is almost the same. Now to put this into context, typically... Um, bacteria, like E. coli, for example, can divide every 20 minutes or so. And the last time, again, that eukaryotes and prokaryotes shared a common ancestor was about 2 billion years ago. So let's just say not 20 minutes, but let's say that bacteria divide every hour. What that would mean is that 16 trillion generations of bacteria okay, have occurred over that 10 billion years. And after 16 trillion rounds of replication, the amino acid sequence that that particular, of this particular gene has not changed, or at least this region, has not changed dramatically from prokaryote to eukaryotic cells. So there's plenty of chances, plenty of opportunities for mutations to work on this particular gene. Every time you have a division, you can introduce change. But that hasn't happened in this gene. Although the amino acids stay the same 
or very close or very similar, the nucleotide sequence often changes a bit. And that's because of what's known as redundancy in the genetic code. So if you'll recall, three nucleotides, right, encode for a single amino acid or encode an amino acid. So a three nucleotide codon codes for a particular amino acid. However, some amino acids are encoded by more than one codon. Leucine immediately leaps to mind here, where there are six different codons that actually encode for a leucine amino acid. Some of these are just like uh, tryptophan here and methionine down here, actually just encoded by a single codon. But most of the other amino acids have multiple nucleotide uh, sequences that can, can, uh, can cause that particular amino acid to be incorporated. If we look at a region of that elongation factor, and again, we look at it from uh, eukaryotic versus prokaryotic cells, we can see here that the, the amino acids, again, I'm looking at the single amino acid codes, the amino acids, two, um, there's two out of seven differences here. But what we find is if you look at the nucleotide sequence, there's often more divergence than that. So up here is the amino acid, and right here is the three-letter nucleotide codon that would give rise to this particular amino acid. And again, I've used the green for uh, nucleotides that are shared and white for nucleotides that are different. And what you see is that change can occur. For example, in things like this, you can get changes occurring. I'm sorry, you can get changes occurring like here, but that the amino acids are, are staying the same. So these things are able to change. Mutations occur but the mutations are occurring within a set limit. That is, the mutations are allowed to occur as long as you don't change that particular amino acid. If the amino acid changes, we don't see that um, those, those mutations or those changes are lost. So although we select for particular uh, changes here, what they do is they preserve the amino acid that's encoded. So it's saying that changes can occur, but they're very defined changes. You can't change beyond certain amino acids. And again, over 2 billion years, 16 trillion generations, these cells have maintained those particular amino acids. And so these amino acids are effectively immortal. Why is that? What's keeping What's selecting for those things not to change? The idea is that these immortal genes, again, often play a role in these fundamental processes of life, the flow of information from DNA to RNA to protein. And that these aren't just single, amino, single proteins carrying out these activities. There are multiple components which are acting together in the, in the, to, say, translate an mRNA to a protein. And because you have these, these coordinations of complexes, you can't go changing certain things in particular proteins. Otherwise, the system won't work, or the system won't work effectively. So fundamental change or radical shifts in these genes can't occur because these processes themselves are fundamental to life. And again, if you change one amino, one protein, 
It may no longer be able to interact with the rest of the translation machinery. Therefore, you can't translate proteins. Therefore, the cell dies. So this is a quote, and again, I think it says it better than, than the way I could say it. This is uh, from Sean Carroll, and this is a quote from The Making of the Fittest. And it says, an immortal letter in a protein sequence has experienced mutation again and again in uncountable numbers of individuals, in millions of species, over billions of years, but that all of these mutations have been purged by selection over and over again. So the idea is that these things don't change. And I thought I would bring this idea up again because for the most part in this course we've been talking about change. But that some things don't actually change. The final thing that I want to talk about today and just finish up on is that in this course we've used DNA to go back and look back at time and look back at our distant ancestors. And we went back about 600 million years to look at the Urobilateria, the last common ancestor of all bilaterally symmetrical animals. And today what I want to do just quickly is to go back 2 billion years and to ask the question, what did this critter look like, or what was this, what happened here? What gave rise to the first eukaryotic cells? So we're going to take one last leap back in about three slides and just cover very quickly this last point here that happened about two billion years ago when the first eukaryotic cell arose. And what can DNA tell us about what happened here at this point? that gave rise to all eukaryotes. And we're going to do that using those immortal genes. Remember, there are about 500 or so genes in your body that trace back at least 2 billion years that have similar examples in bacteria, in archaea. Well, early on, Scientists started to sequence all these genes from bacteria, from archaea, from eukaryotes. And some of the first sequences that came out, they realized that eukaryotes looked a lot more like archaea than they did like bacteria. So here's an example, again, of a small stretch that's in a gene that's involved in, again, mRNA translation into protein. And in this particular gene, there's an 11 amino acid insertion. So you can imagine a protein, and somewhere in the middle of it, there's 11 amino acids stuck there in eukaryotes. And when we look at eukaryotes, you see this 11 amino acid sequence. It's inserted into the middle of this gene. When we look at bacteria, this 11, 11 amino acid, again, these are single letter amino acid codes. Um, those, that 11 amino acid insert is missing from bacteria. However, if we look in archaea, we see this 11 amino acid insert is present in this immortal gene or this conserved gene. You can actually see the single letter codes here aren't that dissimilar to the 11 amino acids that are present in eukaryotes. So how did that sequence get there? 
Well, the most likely explanation is that this sequence originated, there was an 11 amino acid insertion in archaea, and then eventually eukaryotes branched off of archaea and kept that 11 amino acid insert with them. Okay, so that in this particular case, you would generate a phylogenetic tree that looks like this, that you had a last common ancestor of all living organisms. Along this branch, you had a point where somewhere along here, that 11 amino acid insert happened. Then you have archaea going one way and eukaryotic cells going another way. So the evidence suggested that perhaps eukaryotic cells are derived from an archaea. Okay? And there's a lot of examples of stuff like that where these eukaryotic genes look more similar to the archaea than they do to bacteria. And so this was the phylogeny of, of what we thought life was like and how life originated on Earth. And this was probably the case up until about 2004, 2005. And then with the, with the emergence of these ability to sequence genomes very quickly, they started to mass screen eukaryotic and prokaryotic genomes. And what they actually found was the story was much more complex, that yes, some archaea genes actually do look more are more closely related to eukaryotic genes than are the eukaryotes to bacteria. Okay. But there are other examples where bacterial genes look much more similar to eukaryotic genes than archaea genes do. It seemed to be a mixture. It seemed like sometimes you'd look at a, a gene in eukaryotes and it would look like a bacterial gene. And then other times you'd look at a gene in eukaryotes and it would look like an archaea gene. Well, the explanation, the current sort of idea, is that eukaryotes emerged as a fusion between archaea and bacteria. And so instead of having what's called a tree of life, we have a ring of life. And that that fusion event that led to the presence of archaea and bacterial um, fusion, both those organisms donated genes to the new genome, if you will, and so we now have eukaryotic cells that are actually a bit of a hybrid. They have some bacteria, some archaea genes. Now this idea of fusion between organisms is not new. When I was an undergrad, we learned about the endosymbiotic theory. That is the mitochondria, an organelle in your cells that produces energy, was derived when a eukaryotic cell engulfed a bacteria. And the bacteria became, uh, the, ultimately became the mitochondria in your cells. It's also interesting to note, and we can refer back to an earlier lecture, remember that mitochondria actually have their own DNA. Remember we use mitochondria as a way to track the female lineage? Mitochondria, the only organelle that actually has their own genome. And so the idea that uh, mitochondria were derived from a, a, a symbiosis event where a primitive eukaryotic cell engulfed a bacterial cell, and then that bacterial cell ultimately became specialized into the mitochondria. That idea has been around for a very long time. This idea, though, that the actual origins of eukaryotes was through, that, through a fusion, 
Some people actually speculate that the, the endosymbiotic event that led to the engulfment of the bacteria that led to the mitochondria was actually the event that gave rise to eukaryotes. So you had an archaea cell that engulfed a bacterial cell. The bacterial cell jettisoned some of its DNA into the archaea cell. And that new cell, which now had a working mitochondria, uh, became ultimately what, what was, uh, became the first eukaryotic cells. That part is just speculation. However, it is clear that your genome is a mixture of archaea and bacterial genes. And again, the most likely explanation in the current theory is that that happens due to this fusion event, that an archaea and a bacterial cell fused together to create the first eukaryotic cell. And so I'll finish my lectures by reading this quote from Charles Darwin uh, from The Origin of Species. And there is a simple grandeur in this view of life that from so simple an origin through the process of gradual selection of infinitesimal changes, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been evolved.